clever teachers, they uh, would in this moment say, give an inspiring talk about um, you know the fruit of the practice. Two days in, generally certain heaviness is noticed and initial honeymoon feelings are over and the kind of the the mountain becomes more tangible that we're all climb clambering up. Um, unfortunately, I'm not one of those teachers, so I'm going to give you a trouble talk tonight. I'm, I'm, a, bit of a, I'm a bit of a trouble guy. I am very good at problems. No. I, I talk a lot about things that go wrong, things that are obstacles, things that get distorted, things that prove to be hindrances. And I like to spend some time on the uh, closer topography of obstacles, hindrances, uh, basically ways of how our mindfulness and how our attention can get lost. That's what interests me tonight, and I hope you bear with me. I'd like to do this in two parts. One is um, I'd like to give account of some uh, canonical teachings on how mindfulness or how attention can get lost or sidetracked. Then I would uh, kind of like to switch channels and look at the same territory uh, in more psychological terminology. So, buried somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya, we have the story of the Brahman Sangharava, who turns up. We do not know much about him in the suttas. But he comes to the Buddha, and he's a Brahman, a trained Brahman. That means he recites mantras, and he recites texts he has meticulously learned by heart. So, uh, he comes to the Buddha and says, Look, there are days in which I... I can uh, barely remember the stuff I have uh, studiously learned by heart, yeah, uh, and trained hard to remember. Suddenly, I find I barely remember that stuff. Uh, there are other days when I notice that I can remember excellently even the stuff I haven't learned by heart very well, even cursorily learned by heart, and still I am able to remember it. So why is this? What do you have as an explanation? Then the Buddha proceeds to give him a complex simile of uh, the hindrances, the nivarana, as they are called. You know? Not nibbana, nivarana. You know, there are some close friends you need to keep apart in Buddha's teaching. One of them is vipassana, insight, and vipalasa, distortion. Another one is nibbana, awakening, and freedom, and nivarana, obstacle and hindrance, so don't be fooled. Now these Nivarana, they are said to be happening right now. If you're not completely in jhana, if you have not an exquisite state of absorption going on right now, then it is likely that some degree of Nivarana, some degree of these obstacles or hindrances is happening. These are the things that keep us outside of jhanic collectedness of mind. These are the things that are dominant to a greater or lesser extent um, before or uh, before we experience pro- pro- profound absorption. So the Buddha tells this Brahman uh, a simile, and the simile runs as follows. It says, imagine there is a man who would like to go and recognize his own face. 
he would like to see his own face. This is a beautiful analysts amongst you, hearken. This is a beautiful example of trying to find recognition of oneself, self-understanding. Yeah, very famous philosophical uh, value. Start somewhere. The Oracle of Delphi, Knoti se auton, learn to know yourself. And our image here is, our man likes to see his own face, the reflection of his own face. And for that purpose, he seeks water. And he goes and seeks a vessel with water to be able to see his own face. And the subsequent obstacles are all correlated to a quality of water that uh, obstructs the man's ability to see, to reflect his own face. In other words, to understand his own good, to understand the good of others, and to understand both (laughs) his own and the good of others. He does not have an understanding of how things are. Uh, That's an important point. He does not understand the way that are phenomenally experienced by him are truly by their the nature of their arising. He does not understand that process. The texts speak of a term there, and the, te- the term is yatabhuta nyanadasana, understanding things as they have become, literally, or understand, understanding things as they truly are, as we more colloquially would say. Yeah? This is a key term. This is one of the things meditation is supposed to be doing for us, uh, helping us to arrive at an understanding of the way things truly are. In other words, not being sidetracked by our own spin we put on the experience. In other words, by distorting our experience in terms of what we are afraid of or or what we fancy or what we are not or only partially aware of. These would be the three major, um, and also what we dislike, actually, four major forms of disruption in which uh, our cognitive and our affective uh, system can distort reality. In terms of fear, in terms of desire, in terms of dislike and pushing away, and in terms of simple lack of empirical understanding. So understanding things as they truly are is a crucial uh, goal. It is something we we aim at because it is such an understanding that makes us capable of letting go. It is such an understanding that makes us capable of um, freeing ourselves from the consequences of wrong understanding, which uh, are uh, forms of um, trying to pursue happiness in ways that simply don't work. We're not even speaking of morals here. We're just speaking of efficiency. Understanding things wrongly leads us to take wrong approaches to pursue uh, the value of happiness, the value of insight, the value of freedom. So our man meets obstacles. And let me name these obstacles. The first one is called Chandaraka, which is desire. The second is called biyapada, which means ill will. The third one is called uh, tinamidta, which means lethargy and drowsiness, or sloth and torpor would be the more Edwardian term for it. Uh, the fourth one um, has two parts, which is called udacha kukucha, restlessness and agitation of mind. 
And the fifth one is vijikicca, which means doubt. So let me go to the analogy. The starts. The first one is as if a man who looks to see the reflection of his face in a in a vessel of water, and the water is colored. So instead of seeing a true depiction of his face, a true representation of his face, he sees something distorted. So desire as a psychological obstacle. How does this manifest? Yeah. It's, if we are very desirous, then we know how to recognize that in ourselves. Generally, we recognize it more easily in others. Huh? But even in ourselves, after a while and after a certain degree of intensity, we recognize it. For here, we're speaking of meditation hindrances. We're not just speaking of hindrances in our lives, but these nivaranas are specifically hindrances in our meditation. And since we can't really get our hands on much in formal meditation practice, it is very likely that the object of that type of desire is a form of thought. Yeah. In fact, three and a half of those five forms of hindrances will focus on the things we think, things we remember, things we fantasize, things we bring up in mind. Yeah. So it is very likely that you have personal, first-hand acquaintance with the hindrance of desire, even though you may think of yourself as not being particularly greedy. Maybe you're priding yourself to be more the sort of anger type, which believes to be prone. That's, that's what is the case. What was the case for me. I believe that I was basically protected against desire by being an angry type. Yeah? Buddhist temperamentology has a couple of characters. And... Um, one of them is uh, the anger character, and I early on in my practice life identified myself as an anger character, as a dosa charit. Uh, they're easily identifiable by a couple of patterns around taste, behavior, uh, reactiveness, and so forth. It's not a really highly desirable character uh, trait to adopt. So I wouldn't really recommend it. If you have a choice, don't go for it. You know, but, uh, <clears throat> it, uh, it doesn't make for good friends very easily. It, uh, it is kind of detrimental to your self-respect. It's not really great for meditation experience either. Uh, and generally, you, you have a sort of slightly dyspeptic outlook on life and... Uh, I wouldn't really, if you have a choice, recommend this pattern. No. I've been working with this for a number of years and it's getting gradually better. So I, 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 see, I see hope. Yeah. But uh, one of the things early on I thought, because I was actually so uh, experiencing so much aversion in my uh, life and particularly in my practice, and you know, when my life wasn't centered around practice so much, um, it seemed that I had good reason to be averse, but when I started to be around people who practice a lot and started to live in monasteries and started to be around people who, you know, were really good people and I benefited from the teachings, it's difficult to blame your aversion on your outside any longer if you start having good folks around you or if you're starting having a privileged position and some sunny day you actually dawns on you that you're actually doing this to yourself, yeah? This is a very sober moment, generally. And it's also a moment of great transformation because you start owning up. You start stopping to find the blame for your condition in outside 
circumstances and you uh, begin to face squarely that the misery you're putting on yourself is your own doing, most of it. Anyway, um, if you experience a lot of aversion, it is unlikely that you're overwhelmed easily with desire. But I warn you, uh, this is not a safe protection. It's not a long-term strategy against desire to cultivate aversion. Yeah? You may think that it uh, keeps you out of trouble for a while, but sooner or later this thing will curdle. Yeah? Uh, what you then get is generally a sudden onslaught of a lot of desire because it has been kept under wraps by your aversion for a long time. Yeah? So desire in meditation as an obstacle, will focus as trying to seek thought, memory, and fantasy which is pleasing. Yeah? Sounds harmless enough. Desire sounds somewhat kind of crude, slightly, um, maybe slightly attractive in some ways. Sounds somehow alive, isn't it? Desire doesn't seem to have just bad press in our society. It's just the Buddhists which are a bit down on it. But basically, most of the time, most people here would think desire is actually a good thing. It's close to ambition and it's close to enjoyment. And generally, societies here in the West particularly find this is a good thing. Only when things go out of hand, we tend to become a bit moralistic about people who get exploitative or get into addictions or, uh, you know play their desires out on, at the expense of other people. But generally, our societies are quite in favor of desire. They think this is a motor of uh, our uh, economic development. It's the motor of prosperity. It's the motor of civilization, basically, if you want to put it crudely. Um, so being down on desires, as Buddhists are, you know, or at least down on some desires, is slightly subversive. Why is desire, in terms of meditation practice, detrimental? Well, first of all, it takes away energy from your practice. It keeps insinuating itself, and it keeps trying to give you thoughts and images and fantasies and memories of things that you think are either attractive, pleasant, give you good feelings, give you pleasure, give you contentment, give you stimulation, um, give you that warm, fuzzy glow. And secondly, desire is a problem because when you sit here on a cushion, you generally don't get what you desire because you're sitting here. Because most of the things you can fantasize about in this meditation hall cannot be obtained simply by fantasizing. Even if you fantasize about high meditative states, generally by fantasizing about them, you preclude them. One safe way to stop yourself from getting profound meditative states is fantasizing about them or obsessing about them. And all the rest of it, you know, you also don't get. So desire has two problems. One of them, it it takes away your attention from the declared exercise. It seeks to gratify you by taking you away from the stillness of mind. And secondly, what you desire, you don't get. After having fantasized for half an hour, you're sitting here disappointed and frustrated because you don't get what you fantasize about. Because what we, don't, what we want is not fantasies, most of us, most of the time. 
We don't want fantasies. We want a real McCoy. Some of us settle for fantasies. But that's another matter. We'll have to take that up another time. Why, why one would f- settle for fantasies if we can have the real McCoy? It's an interesting question. Jandaragam has a desire that scatters the mind from its declared aim to focus, to still, and to quieten the discursive patterns of mind. Chandaraga produces thoughts and images and memories and fantasies of things that are pleasant, and when we think them, this is not as nice as getting them, but thinking them gives us a sort of warm afterglow. Yeah? And seeking that warm afterglow stops our mind from collecting itself, stops our mind from calming. Now, it may seem harmless, doesn't pollute a lot, doesn't cost anything, you know, doesn't exploit anybody just sitting here having a few fantasies, um, gets my time passed, you know, doesn't hurt, and yet it's a waste of time. You know? It wastes my time. I've come here to meditate, I've come here to quieten the mind because a mind more quiet is capable of more profound understanding, is capable of deeper appreciation, and is capable of truly seeing its own dynamics. Now I sit here and, you know, fantasize about food, about sex, about holidays, about my preferred pastimes, climbing, sailing, you know, calligraphy, whatever your favorite pastimes are. Um, You may solve sudokus in your head, you may write epistles, you know. You may do all kinds of things in terms of desire. Desire feels something pleasant comes up, a memory, a thought, an idea, something that is interesting, something that gives you a good feeling. And then desire says, let's repeat that. Yeah? Let's stay on this for a little longer. Desire doesn't feel greatly immoral. You know? It's not wildly outrageous. Most of our desire, most of the stuff that keeps us from getting collected and still, is fairly mundane. It's lovely, nice, bonding, good stuff we appreciate in our lives. And yet, we're sitting here and playing with these images, playing with these thoughts, memories, fantasies, receiving the afterglow of this or the uh, anticipation of this, and yet our mind cannot get still on this. The energy of the mind going out through the senses, dissipating, as patterns of attentional focus in the world of sensory experience, including the sensory experience of having a mind that is capable of holding as its objects thoughts, memories, fantasies, images, concepts, text. Text and story. Now, anything that distributes your attention, anything that preoccupies your mind in such a way, will stop it, however harmless it may be otherwise, will stop it from deepening in stillness. It will not grow calm because it thinks of something it likes and it attaches to it. It likes to keep this. It likes to play with it a little. It likes to chew a little bit on it. It likes to suck a little bit longer on it. And we keep rummaging in our old drawers, fishing up things we like to play with and receive a little bit of that good feeling, yeah? sort of a lukewarm 
echo of what this feeling was when we actually experienced this. Now this is harmless enough. Don't get me wrong. The problem with it is it stops the mind from deepening. It stops the mind from settling. So Chandaraga as a meditation obstacle, there is other uh, there are other arguments against desire in Buddhist psychology, but here, just as a meditation obstacle, uh, deals with thought, and it is it is faster than you think. It does not always declare itself. Desire doesn't always come with a big tag around its neck saying, "I am desire, beware." Yeah, I'll take you somewhere. I'll make you waste time, and then finally you don't get what you wanted. And time has passed. Yeah. Doesn't say that. It says, oh, this is nice. Let's do that again. Yeah. Can we go a little closer? A little slower? More detail? Yeah. Okay, that was that. Lovely. Great. Yeah, we'll do this. And time passes. Yeah. As soon as your mind goes to an object of desire, receives gratification continues to seek that gratification, focuses again on that object, your mind will not become quiet. Not as quiet as it can be. After a while, the contentment would wear off. Your mind is still not quiet. Your mind is still slightly restless and it will look for other thoughts that it could occupy itself with. It will look for other thoughts, other memories, other plans, other problems it might solve. You know? Some people love problems to be solved. I love little problems. When I have big problems, I prefer creating a few small problems I am good at solving. You know? It gives me a short-term gratification and staves away the big problem. I'm a bit worried about whether I'm able to solve it. Do you know that? Does your mind work like that? Rather than write a difficult page of text, why don't I go into the bathroom and clean all the, all the tooth glasses I can find? Yeah? I never would have thought that cleaning bathroom tooth glasses is a particularly rewarding experience, but at the moment I'm looking at a page of blank, a blank screen and a page of something I should write. Generally, going to clean something feels good, feels an attractive proposition. Yeah. So, desire... Harmless as it sounds, harmless as it often feels, is quite deleterious to collectedness of mind. The mind that seeks happiness outside, the mind that seeks stimulation, is a mind that does not sweeten itself by being still. That's the tragedy about desire, and it's the tragedy about the restlessness and our seeking of gratification in outside things that... Although it is harmless enough, understandable enough, it persistently strengthens the flow of energy of our vitality to go to places that can only temporarily gratify our wish for happiness. And that's that's one bad thing. It only does half of what it promises. Generally, it doesn't even do half, you know. Strawberry, if you just want a strawberry from a strawberry, makes you completely happy. Yeah? But usually we don't want just a strawberry. You know? Usually we want from the poor strawberry a lot more than the poor strawberry can deliver. Yeah? I don't want to be a little bit strawberry happy. You know? I want to be really happy. 
forever, yeah, if I'm honest. So the strawberry delivers a little bit, you know, it does its best, but basically it can't deliver what I secretly expect from it. It can only deliver what a strawberry can. You can replace the strawberry with just about anything. Recognition, success, sex, power, safety, enjoyment, experience, yeah, in scare quotes. Uh, Just about any possible experience you can have is unlikely to leave you in a prolonged state of happiness. Don't believe me. Very far for yourself. Think of what you've craved most and see whether it has delivered. It probably has delivered to some degree, but it is unlikely to have left you content for a long time. I suspect, otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. You You would probably go do whatever you do to make you happy, rather than come and get locked up in a Buddhist meditation center and spend endless hours in joint-tracking fanaticism and um, listen to strange Dhamma talks in the evening. So desire has a poignancy to it. It is very close to us that we seek what makes us, what gives us gratification. At the same time, there's always something left open, yeah? There's always something that is missing, that doesn't quite hit the spot. Even when we get the gratification, there's something that gets used to it. So the law of diminishing returns kicks in, and we don't quite derive the same degree of satisfaction from what was still a great thing yesterday. It's still a good thing today. Tomorrow it's going to be a normal thing. The day after it's going to be a boring thing, and the day after I'm going to be really jaded by it. So we're strange people. We seek, and even if we find, we're not happy with it. That's the big problem. The small problem as meditators is that we dissipate our energy and that the same movement of seeking gratification through the experience of our senses takes the mind or robs the mind of its possibility to find gratification of a mind that doesn't move outward in a seeking mode, but that actually sweetens itself by being, by coalescing, by collecting itself, yeah? In the, the word calm or collectedness, the word samadhi as a term for collectedness of mind is precisely that. It means something is put together, something is coming together, something is unified. The most beautiful word for samadhi is the term unification. That unification of mind only happens if we stop running away, if we stop running out, if we stop looking for here and there and somewhere else. Only, and that's completely counterintuitive, only if we're willing to still that mind with maybe one thing, one object, harmless enough, only then will that mind become more calm. The second obstacle is precisely the same. Just it's the flip side of the coin. Instead of seeking gratification through pleasant things, we stimulate the mind and we vitalize the mind through being against things. We hate things. We dislike things. We develop aversion against things. We are disgusted. We are indignant. We are outraged about things. We're, 
we, we say rather than what desire says is, oh yes, yeah? we say no, no, not you, I don't, not this, not like that, not me. Yeah? It's a creation of identity, not through, oh yes, let me take that in, let me take that on board, give me more of this. Yeah? That's what would desire say. Um, the Apada says, I know. Well, I'm not joining. I'm not saying yes. I'm not agreeing. I'm not following. You know, I don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah. So that same energy, that same power in the other direction has an equally deleterious effect on the mind. It has stopped this mind basically from coalescing, from unifying itself. Yeah. It's kind of the vinegar the vinegar feeling in the blood, just two, three drops, and you kind of have a slightly acerbic outlook on the world. Generally, your face is going to show it in some way. You find it very easy to say no. Before you even have heard what people say, you basically say no. It doesn't get into your system. The climate is acidic, obviously. The desire mind is always on the lookout for intensification and for taking things in and for being not not enough as it is wants to have more the aversion mind says oh it's already too much as it is don't more don't give me any more keep off stay away no thanks yeah it does this kind of movement away it pushes what it perceives to be unpleasant or un gratifying or um, discomfortable, it pushes this away. Sometimes subtly, you know, thank you very much, not today. Yeah. Sometimes more violent says no. Yeah. This type of mind is fault-finding. Yeah. It's a beautiful word. Pali word for fault-finding is randagavesi. It means to see the cracks you know, or seeking the cracks in things. This is very telling, isn't it? Some people are really good. They have the bad eye. They go wherever they go. They kind of see what's wrong. You know, oh God, his socks are not working. Look at that. Yeah. Shouldn't wear this tie. No, there's a spot on the wall. Windows are really cracking. Is it's not working here? Yeah, so much energy just goes out. There's, you know, be a nice center here. They should do something about the food and about these birds. You yeah. know, yeah, get. Yeah, you know. I wonder why he's. Why these pipes are not painted, you know? Why is this pipes not painted? Okay, that carpet is okay, but it's God. I'm sure it's full of it's full of um, what are these little animals called? Yeah. <laughs> Just the thought of it gives me the shivers, you know. A strange place, isn't it? I quite like meditation centers, but this one is a funny one, you know. I like them more broad, you know, not with people though. At the back end, you know, I'd like to see people I talk to. You know, you know that kind of mind. Yeah. I've been to very perfect monasteries, you know, wonderful, lovely spots in the mountains of Chengdao in Thailand. You know, we were alone, just two of us, friends. We were the only monks, and there it was an empty monastery you know, because poor Isan monks generally love the hot season and love the climate and they feel lost up in the mountains while poor Swiss guys like me in the hot season they love it up in the mountains it's great 
Rain is good, clouds is good, mountains is good, loneliness, very good. Perfect place. I'm going to really have a breakthrough here. Meditate, wonderful. Simple folk down in the valley, feed us, walk back, walk down, walk up, wonderful exercise. Just the right sort of practice. This is Buddhism, as it should be. Do there, you know, two days later you start thinking, hmm, water tastes a bit funny, that tank should need a cleaning, you know. <laughs> Better go and look in there, I'm sure there's a few jingjocks dead floating around. Yeah. <laughs> brooms could do it with a bit of improvement, yeah, it's funny brooms. Why are they so short? You know, how do you, you know I'm a grown up adult, how should I have such a short broom, you know? Gotta better do something about this. Nice place, but. Got to do something about these brooms, you know. Within short time, you basically have turned this perfect, lovely monastery into a, you know, a place that needs a lot of work, a lot of maintenance, and you either going to fix it or you walk out. You know, I've done both: fixed it or walked out, you know, or fixed it and then walked out. You know. So, you know, the mind is a strange animal. It. The fault-finding mind uh, finds cracks just about everywhere. Yeah? And if you have that mindset, then you will find always things to vitalize your mind by disagreeing, by seeing that which is not good. It's a skill. Yeah? For meditators, it's disastrous, because <clears throat> if that goes on, you have a very bad chance of actually collecting your mind because that vinegar in your blood is going to prevent that your mind receives the cohesion it needs to become unified. As a meditation hindrance, uh, uh, this is one of the most effective ones. Aversion, uh, whether gentle and just slightly acerbic or real sort of seething hatred, uh, both are pretty disastrous for your meditation for your capacity to still the mind. It's no secret that people who have good meditation generally have Brahma-viharas. Generally they have capability of loving and being compassionate. The image the monk uh, is told, the monks are told by the Buddha for the second simile for Vyapada, the ill will, is a man wants to see his face and he finds a pot of boiling water. So instead of seeing a smooth surface in which he could reflect his face, he finds bubbles, you know, cauldron with bubblings, bubbling water. There's no way you're going to recognize your face in there. So in the same way, our man is incapable of seeing his own good, seeing the good of others, or seeing the good of both. The third obstacle I spoke a little bit this morning is sleepiness, lethargy, drowsiness. The Pali actually indicates not just sleepiness and drowsiness, but it indicates a stiffness, a numbness, or a sort of stupor. So you can stay awake, but somehow stuporific. Some kind of a numbness, something rigid about your mind. Sometimes the mind does that. It goes, in a way, quite still, in terms that there is not much thought going on, that you don't discern any overt emotional movements. At the same time, it's kind of dead, yeah? sort of a moon landscape, slightly apocalyptic, you know, dusty, uh, bone dry. And you wonder, okay, this is peaceful. uh, Nothing grows here. It's kind of lifeless. 
So sometimes the mind goes into spaces like that. You may actually not be asleep, but you still may be numb, or you may be in a sort of strange type of stupor. The telltale sign is always the absence of a mobile mindfulness and decreased sensitivity to sound, decreased sensitivity to sensation, decreased sensitivity to the movements of your heart, for example. So, Tinamida may have many, many expressions. I spoke of, you know, there's the honorable fatigue, you don't sleep well, you had a busy life, uh, you come in here, you're trying to slow down, and all you notice is your body just goes into a kind of big roll. It kind of says, oh. Or your mind just sinks. Tibetans have an expression of this. The sinking mind. The mind that doesn't rise and float, but actually the kind of sort of sinking experience. So Tinamida may have to do with a variety of things. It may have to do with your condition. If you come from a very busy life, and then here it's peaceful, often we go into sort of a compensatory mode. You, know? you go through a drowsy period because your life is overstretched and busy. Sometimes the pendulum swings to the other side, and you go through a moment, and that moment may last from anything from an hour to a couple of days, go through just kind of tiredness, strange incapacity to sustain your attention on anything that isn't urgent or dangerous or pressing or somehow wildly important. Yeah? Sometimes that takes a moment to, for us to actually adjust being able to sustain attention on a chosen object or process. Because we've lived so much under pressure and adrenaline that when that pressure or adrenaline falls away, suddenly we just, you know, drift off. Something in us just goes, okay, thank you, this is safe enough, nothing bad, ping, yeah, wake, gone. Sometimes that sleepiness and numbness comes in because our meditation is not clear. We're not actually sure what we're paying attention to, or we're trying to pay attention to it that big, but actually what we needed to do is to get it much smaller. Yeah? So sometimes our drowsiness is because we're not skillful with our meditation object. Sometimes our drowsiness or sleepiness is neither of the above, but it has something to do with our willful attempt to do something. And our sleepiness is a part of our mind's passive-aggressive resistance. Part of our mind that wasn't asked in this process to come on retreat, to do these exercises, to get up in the morning, to be quiet... Part of that mind gets just flattened by some willful other part in your mind. And then when it's time for all parts to happily coalesce in deep samadhi experience, that part that was flattened rebels and says, okay, you can get me out of bed, you can get me onto this retreat, you can put me on this diet, but I won't meditate. Every time you try, I'll just, you know, I'll sulk. I'll go to sleep. Do what you want. You know, here you've got it. So sometimes we have a kind of rebellious streak in us that acts up in sleepiness. Often we notice that because um, we're quite awake, come in, somebody says meditate, and we start to feel this incredible weight in our neck. Yeah? Some of the air we breathe seems to go fluid and thick. You know, our body seems to weigh a ton. You know? 
and our chest is heavy, you know, and we kind of breeze against dry wood, you know, nothing moves. There are other reasons. Sometimes our sleepiness is a sort of emergency break of our psychic health, psychological health. Something is big in our life and we're not safe. We're not resourced. We maybe not have the um, support we feel we need. And yet something is close to the surface, something big we would need to process. But our, our heart or our mind in an unconscious way knows that we don't have uh, uh, the wherewithal to cope with this, to process or integrate this. So instead of us getting too close to it, something just pulls the brake. It says, okay, let's put him to sleep. This is too dangerous. He's playing with the fire here. He's not got enough support, not enough resources. Teacher is nothing worth. So let's put him to sleep before he does, he does any dangerous things here. Yeah? So sometimes your psyche does this sort of emergency exit. Yeah? Just anesthetize him, basically. So, if you feel sleepy, if you struggle with that, you will need to try out what brand your sleepiness is. They all need different... Uh, they need to be taken care of in different ways. If you just feel slightly drowsy because your meditation object has become hazy after the meal, um, then all it maybe takes is kind of redressing your posture, opening your eyes, taking a few deep breaths, and having the humility of staying with a few sensations of fatigue in your body. Maybe it takes that you get out of your head, because sometimes when we are sleepy and we try to think our way out of, or we try to visualize something, we completely lose it. Sleepiness is not helped by cognitive processes. If you want to have a chance with your sleepiness, Stay with the body. The body is the best option to get out of sleepiness. And investigate. Where are you not sleepy? That's an interesting question. Not just where are you sleepy, but where are you not sleepy? That generally tells you something about what's important, what's vitalizing. The next one. Oh, sleepiness. The man who looks for the reflection of his face. In sleepiness he finds a vessel of water that is moss-covered, that is completely, the surface is full of moss. Again, he cannot see his reflection, cannot see his own good, the good of others, and the good of both. The next one is, again, just the opposite. It is called restlessness and has a physical part, and it has a mental part. The restlessness, the physical part, is very easy. It's one of the hindrances that does not come with thought, Remember the first one does come with thought. Ill will focuses on things you think, you remember, you plan, you call to mind, you bring up. Uh, The third one, sleepiness, does not come with thought. And the fourth one, the restlessness of the body, also does not come with thought. At least the first half of the fourth one. That type of restlessness is kind of as if the body, when you finally decided to sit still and calm the mind, as if the body plays up, as if the body entertains itself with sensation. You may have seen or experienced that. You sit here and you got this strange sensation, as if you have a horde of ants walking up your neck. Yeah? 
Or you have this kind of tingling suddenly. First strangely, and then annoyingly, and then slightly, you get grow slightly concerned. You know, is this the beginning of a psychosis? Or do I actually have do I actually have some ants crawling up my neck? Yeah. Is this the beginning you know, what could that be? You know, something really weird sensations. So you do a little bit of Okay, good, fine. Nobody looked at it. Fine, it's fair enough. And then suddenly a pull starts in your left leg. You know, really strange pull. Never had that. Really strange sensation. You cope with that. And then you're kind of close to coughing, yeah? So obviously you don't want to cough. It's embarrassing. It makes noise. You know, it's kind of unhealthy. So There you are. Your sweat breaks out. You know, you're trying to suppress it. You try to suppress and relax at the same time, you know. <laughs> Obviously, you know you should relax, that would help, but basically, this is not safe enough, so you suppress a little bit, so just in case the relaxation doesn't work. You know, and you know, you exert quite a lot of energy 15 minutes, you know, really close at an attack of cough. And definitely, your sweat breaks out and you're trembling a little bit. and you know, finally that may abate and then you know you have this weird sensation as if your body is kind of to the right side that you know your torso is doing this and then your body is kind of doing this on the right side just kind of completely displaced you know you wonder okay where do they merge this, this can't be the case there must be a moment where they kind of goes over there to the right you know? Or you kind of feel that the blood supply seems to be cut off or that you have yet another muscle who is crisp and rather than relaxed and you just kind of keep relaxing, relaxing. There's a little crack there. There's another vertebrae and there's a little rib joint which goes... So you keep doing this sort of stuff and you never stop. That's the story. You never stop. As soon as you give in, it continues. You scratch, you adjust, you verify... You take off fictional animals of your body. You, you know, as soon as you started this, to give into this, your mind and your body will conjure more of these phenomena up. Obviously, this is greatly helped if you're a little anxious. Yeah? It is also helped if you know something about anatomy, then you can fantasize with much more credibility. You know? Yeah. Oh, this is the beginning of a cartilage tear. This is my inner meniscus, this is my outer meniscus. Oh, God, it's scraping against the patella. I can feel it. Very yeah. Is this only an arthritis or is this already an arthrosis? That snapping sound, that must be my lateral cartilage. You know? If you have a little bit of fantasy, just lots of this goes on and you never stop. The hour is over and you have basically just adjusted yourself. (laughs) So that is kind of bodily restlessness. In a way, it's quite honest. We're all laughing, but in fact, we know it. We know it all too well. It's uh, the second part of that fourth hindrance um, called kukucha, means basically agitation of the mind. It has often something to do with your conscience. It, me, it, it is the feeling that you have done something or not done something you should have done that 
offends against your standards, against your values. You, know? you don't have a choice about your values. Things you feel are needed or necessary or just or right or appropriate or called for or the opposite. Yeah? And you have somehow not lived up to what you know to be true for yourself. You know, fair enough. Buddha, Jesus, Socrates, they all kind of agreed human beings are capable of having an ethical sensitivity and that, that sensitivity is a basically useful thing. But right now you're sitting here. Yeah? Right now you can't do anything about this. But you kind of flog yourself with this. Yeah? Instead of recognizing the destructive nature of that thought pattern, you keep going over what you feel has not been good in your life, in your doings, what you are lacking, what you, are, what you did too much, what you did wrong, what you didn't do enough of, what you shouldn't have. Yeah? You go, keep going over it. And that type of thinking has something agitating. It is something to do with regret, but it is also something to do often with self-punishment. Yeah? So in many ways, you're kind of, by going over this and chewing this over, you keep stimulating a sense of remorse, a sense of unease, and a sense of agitation. And to be honest, right now, you can't do anything about it because the people are probably not here, you should say sorry to, or they're already dead, and you can't. Or you're just kind of torturing yourself with something that maybe needs addressing in, in your life, but right now it cannot be done. So by persisting on mulling it over, you just... Stimulate your mind, agitate your mind, and torture yourself. And obviously thereby preclude your possibilities to obtain unification of mind. Yeah? Very powerful way of getting yourself out of the chance to actually have stillness of mind is just think things over in your life that you should have not done, yeah? or that you did do badly, or that you now know better what you should have done then, 30 years ago. Yeah? I mean, if you grow older, then chances are that the number of things you feel have bad feelings about will increase. That seems to be the pattern. Um, I've found out that uh, when I was young, I was thinking a lot more about the future. Now I find myself increasingly thinking about the past. That seems to be the pattern. As, we, as we're younger, we think... Uh, in anticipation of the things yet to come. And as one grows older, it seems to be that we think more and more about what has already happened. This type of obstacle, number four, is particularly uh, concerned with thought. Again, there's one concerned with thought. And it is highly capable of destroying any, any uh, stillness of mind. Yeah. Maybe you need to do something in your life. Maybe you need to change. Maybe you need to say sorry. Maybe you need to make amends. True. It's not that the content of what you think is inaccurate. It may be. But the moment is completely inappropriate to spend time on. Yeah? So that's what makes it an obstacle. The image for this one is the image of a man who tries to see his face and the water is whipped up. The water is agitated and whipped up. Unruly surface and is incapable, man is incapable of seeing his face, seeing his representation, of understanding what he needs, 
what is his good, what is the good of others, what is the good of both. The last of the obstacles, vichikicha, beautiful word, uh, speaks of doubt. Now doubt is an emotion. It's something here. It's a question of which I feel I should not have this question. It's not just a question mark. We have many question marks which are not a problem. There's many things we don't know, but they don't really trouble us big. But doubt is something we feel we should know. Should I keep this job? Stay married to this man? Continue doing this practice? Can this be trusted? Is this worth it? These are big questions. And we feel we need to clarify this before we can continue. It's going to possibly be ruinous if we are doing, doing it wrong. And yet, right now, we're sitting here and we can't actually know. There are so many things we don't know. But the feeling says, you should know. You know? How, would you, how could you know? So, building a big scenario, probability. You know? What is likely? What is proof? What, is the, what does this prove it? What is likely to happen? What is the worst case scenario? What is the best outcome? You know? We're starting to create mental constructions to cope with the unease in our heart about something which is big in our life. Now, already if you listen to that, you will know it will never work. You will never be able to really pacify a genuine doubt with thought. Thought is fairly flimsy stuff. Even if you make complex constructions with thought, you know, you shift your doubt a little bit and the whole, the whole thought construction collapses. Yeah. So, you can never pacify a doubt with thought. But contrary, every single one of your thoughts provides wonderful food for future doubt. Yeah? Doubts feed on thought. Everything you know can be turned into doubt. So the, the obstacle of doubt creates a situation in which it says, basically, you should know something you do not know. And to get out of this unpleasant bind, you need to think now. You need to think a lot. <coughs> you need to figure this out. Now, in this retreat, in this sitting, this needs to be clarified. Think through it really heavily. Yeah. Get to the bottom of it. And do it now. Don't meditate. Just think through it. Yeah. And then you meditate. Obviously, if you've done that for a while, you know it doesn't work like that. The human mind is strange. Sometimes we we do not understand what takes us from not knowing to knowing something. Science tells us, you know, we can do this. We can do this by deduction. We can do this by inference. We can do this by empirical research. Yeah, this is true. These are good disciplines. I definitely recommend all of them. Inference and empirical research may be more than deduction, but um, even deduction, good stuff. But there are so many things we can't figure out that way, is it? Yeah. Some things just take time till we, till we suss them. And there is, at any given moment in our life, there are things we simply do not know. We do not know the value, we do not know the outcome, we do not know the right course of action. 
And the doubt says, this is not correct. This should not be the case. Right now, you should do things to stop this from happening. Think, think, my son. Think, my daughter. Do not stop. Do not let up. Carry on. Move. And that's what we do. Under this way of doubt, that's what we do. The heart is disquiet, the mind is agitated, and we think. We think through the scenarios we have learned to think. If you've learned to think, you can think big scenarios. And whatever you do, you will definitely not meditate. Whatever you do, you will definitely not find peace. You will definitely not find a calm mind. You will definitely not find a unified experience of your capacity to distill attention into mindfulness, into a fluid quality of attention, and from mindfulness to distill samatha, uh, to distill stillness from that, to gain a deep knowing clarity and quiet in your heart. Definitely not the case when your mind is filled with doubt and you actually affirm proceeding to trying to quench that doubt with cognitive or discursive strategies. So, how would this look in a Western perspective? How would we think what can happen with our mindfulness or our capacity to attend to something we have chosen, like a meditation object? One way to get lost in this is we may lose the fluidity. We may lose the fluidity in our attention. Something can happen, and that completely preoccupies us and fixates our attention to that one thing. A dirty look. This is just, it's incredible just how, how mean she can look. Yeah? Fifteen minutes later, we're sitting there, pouring over our soup, and all we can think of is how she looks. Yeah? Spoon goes in, spoon goes out, spoon goes in, and the mind is preoccupied with something that has happened 15 minutes ago. Yeah? Losing the fluidity in our attention is one way we can get lost. A thousand ways to do that. Sometimes by fascination, more often by insult, more often by injury or slight. We may lose the space. Something happens, we get hurt, there is a pain, and our whole world of experience seems to shrivel to that one pain. Banged, Banged my elbow... And I'm kind of walking up and down my flat and kind of holding my, uh, what is it called? Musician's bone in English, is that it? Funny bone, thank you. Yeah. Funny bone. Yeah. So my whole world, all the things that I have ever thought, all the things that I have ever cultivated, all the things that are important for me, all the things I have understood, somehow gone. And it's me my aversion against the pain in my funny bone. Yeah. Strange. Pain can do strange things to us, can collapse whole worlds. Yeah. So sometimes we lose the space. Our world was big, our awareness was big, was mobile, and suddenly something happens and ping, we're reduced to one single thing and all the space is gone. Sometimes we lose our bodies. Something preoccupies us in our head. A little imagination, a fantasy, a little fancy. 
something that frightens us or something that pleases us and we get attached to, we get obsessed with, and we lose our body. We lose all awareness of the body. We lose awareness of where our feet are, of where our bums are, of where our heart is. We lose awareness of our posture. We lose aware of our hunger, of our sensations, of how we look, how we behave, where we stand. Yeah? Have you been there? Completely preoccupied with something in our head, standing there somewhere in the universe, not knowing what is above and what is below. So we can lose the somatic embodied aspect of our lives. Sometimes we lose the other. Something happens and our attention seems to implode. We lose the connection. We lose the notion that we are not alone. We seem to be shriveling up, maybe in a vortex uh, at the bottom of which there is just us, or our pain, or our obsession, or our ambition. Rarely our pleasure. Generally, uh, something negative. So in many ways, um, my attention implodes on my own quasi, the the aspect of my own corner of the field I'm holding. And the field that is held by many other people is somehow disappearing. And I can feel really alone in this. It feels as if alone me is real. And when I do that, I really am alone. I can feel really and truly isolated. So these would be examples. Losing the fluidity losing the space, uh, losing the body, losing the other. I mean, you could probably add a few more, but these are big ways of how we can get lost, how our attention, our mindfulness can get hijacked by a particular aspect of our experience at the expense of everything else. Consider in those days when we have to meditate and when we continue to do a variety of exercises and this gradual shift of emphasis, continue, keep these as a, at the back of your mind as, as a possible scenarios in which you might get lost or which you might recognize. It's important to recognize it when it comes up in your life. When it comes up in your life, generally it feels, this is my story, I'm alone in this. Nobody else has that. They're all looking pretty angelic out there. They're quietly meditating, getting at the good stuff. And I'm here in my definitely real personal world. And it's me who is the problem here. It's probably not you who is the problem. Your your mind has been conditioned by many factors. And what you identify with as being your problem is probably not just your problem. So... If you have a map, if you at least recognize some of the telltale signs of these states, the five hindrances, um, the patterns in which attention might get trapped and um, sidetracked, then acknowledge this and say, oh, okay, this is what he said. This is what he spoke about. It's probably not just my problem. 
it's probably, you know, it's in the operating system for the whole race. Yeah. This, this doesn't solve the problem, but it takes the personal sting out of it. It takes, it makes this from being a personal failure to being uh, a generic software bug we basically need to address. Still needs to address, but it's no longer your problem alone and you don't get any identity out of it. So consider these obstacles. Did I give you the last one, the image of the last one? No, I didn't. The image for doubt is troubled and dirty water. The water is full of mud, uh, full of clay, and it is troubled. Yeah. So Good. Let me stop. Thanks for your patience and your attention. Let's be quiet for a minute or two and then recite the Brahma Viharas. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.